Well, let's open God's Word together. It is a joy to bring you God's Word. It is a joy to preach God's Word. It's a joy to preach on the preaching of God's Word today in this sermon. If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians. We believe here that the Word of God is inspired by God, which means it's His actual words written down through the apostles and the prophets. And we also believe that it's inerrant. It's without error. And because of those two things, we understand that God wrote His Word through those people, specifically in the order that we read it. In other words, it ought to be studied and it ought to be preached passage by passage, verse by verse. Because in the case of Ephesians, the whole book is an argument. It's an argument from God through Paul that he writes to the churches. And to understand it, we need to take it passage by passage. And that's what we do in expository preaching. We, we open up each Paragraph, sometimes just one verse, or each section of the letter. And so that's what I want to do for you today. We're progressing through the book, and we're already on chapter 3. We're looking at 8 through 13. 8 through 13 today, and this is Paul's preaching of the mystery of Christ. Last week we looked at the mystery of Christ itself, and this paragraph is closely connected to that. He's going to talk about his preaching of that mystery. And it might even be in your uh, translation, just one solid paragraph. Others will break it up into two here. But remember, he starts a prayer in verse 1, and he moves away from that. And 2 through 13, he talks about this mystery before he returns to the prayer. So let's just read it. Let me read starting in verse 1 all the way through 13 so you get the context. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. The Christian preaching, the preaching of the gospel has really fallen on hard times today in Christianity. It's been that way on and off throughout church history, but certainly if you take a survey of churches, you take a survey of sermons proclaimed in the churches, and even even to groups of unbelievers in evangelism, you will often find that preaching of the gospel doesn't even occur. 
Sometimes preaching in general doesn't even occur in Christianity. It's more of a discussion going on. But if there is preaching, if there happens to be preaching, you'll often find that it's not focused on Christ. It's not connected at all to the gospel. There's no proclamation of the good news. And even amongst evangelicals, Bible-believing churches, the gospel might be mentioned, but it's not actually proclaimed. It's not actually proclaimed. It's talked about. It's labeled gospel this, gospel-centered that. But as believers in Christ, we have to proclaim the full counsel of God. We have to proclaim the gospel that's in Scripture. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. That's what he said he's been laboring to do since he was called by Christ to do it. He wants them to know the truth. He wants them to know how they were saved. They've already been saved, so he wants them to look back and find out how it all happened. That was chapter 1. Chapter 2, even, about Gentiles. And he wants them to know God's plan for the ages in Christ. It's not as if they get saved one day and then they go right back to their normal life, never learning from Scripture again. He wants them to know. He wants them to understand so they can worship God, so they can tell others. He wants them to know the gospel and understand its implications for life. The gospel is not something you learn one day and then forget and move on. He wants them to know how everything in Scripture connects to Christ, to connects to the good news that we receive. That's the message he's preaching. He calls it the mystery of Christ here in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He uses the same language in the letter to the Colossians. We can't just put gospel up on signs and, and label things gospel this and gospel that. That doesn't make it the actual gospel. seems like everything in Christianity nowadays is called gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered living, gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered business. Those are good if they actually point back to Christ in the gospel. But we can't just slap labels on things. We can't just say it's a magical formula. If we say the word gospel enough, that does something for us. No, we've got to look to Scripture. What is the gospel? How does Paul connect it to all things? And it's a message. The gospel is this. It's a message about Jesus to sinners. It's a message about what Jesus did and who he is to sinners so that they can be saved. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Well, let's consider how Paul opens that up here. Let's look at how he connects the gospel to God's whole plan from eternity past to eternity future. What is God's plan? Has he always had that plan? Or did he just come up with it at some point later as plan B? So we're going to see here in this passage, Ephesians 3, 8 through 13, we're going to learn that that Paul preached the mystery of Christ, the gospel, so that the church would be revealed to the whole universe, including angels. And so that sinners could be saved in Christ, especially Gentile sinners, and brought together into one body with Jewish believers. What's the good news? That Christ came into the world to save sinners. And that when we are saved, we can be joined together in his body with others who are not like us. With Jews who were given the promises in the Old Testament and Gentiles who were not given the promises in the Old Testament but now have those promises. So I'm going to look at the preaching that Paul said he did. The preaching of the mystery of Christ. What, what is that? We're going to look at three main points. We're going to look at the content that he preached. We're going to look at the purpose of that and then the result of that. So first, let's look at content. Content, he mentions in verses 8 and 9. And content is important. You know, you can have preaching that's not at all biblical. 
Preaching just means proclamation. And if the content's not biblical, then it's not Christian preaching. And Paul starts off telling us what he preached, what he, what he said when he went to these Gentiles, and what he wrote back to them in these letters that he wrote to the churches that he planted. Content is so important. You can never forget content. The gospel comes with words. I know it's popular said that if you live a certain way, people will see the gospel in you. If, if you just live a holy life, suddenly somebody will look at you and know the gospel. No, it doesn't work like that. It comes with words. You have to tell people the words of the gospel. You have to tell people this mystery of Christ that Paul has been talking about here. In verse 8, he says, to me. He starts out just to me in the very beginning, talking about himself. The very least of all saints, this grace was given. Paul's been commissioned. Commissioned by Christ. Uh, We've looked recently at what it means to be an apostle. And it meant that you had to be personally called by the resurrected Christ. You had to see him in the flesh and be appointed by him. And then you would later confirm that by miraculous signs and wonders. Paul was commissioned. He was going to go out and he was going to preach to the Gentiles. He was going to plant churches. He was going to build them up in the doctrines of scripture. But even after doing that for years, look what he says here. I'm the very least of all the saints. He's talking about believers. The saints are believers. The saints are holy ones. The saints aren't just certain people given sainthood. These are all the believers. And he says, I'm the very least. That's what he thinks of himself. He's unworthy. Such a wonderful task to proclaim the gospel. And he says, I'm not not actually worthy of that. Why does he say that? It's not false humility. He's not saying, I'm really all this great guy and I'm just going to tell you I'm not worthy. He actually believes that. And he's saying that the grace given to him is beyond anything he deserved. He's not worthy to be saved and he's not worthy to proclaim the gospel. Who of us is actually worthy to be saved? That would indicate we've earned something by God. He's just saying what we should all really say. That we don't deserve God's blessings. That we don't deserve God's grace. I don't deserve to be up here preaching to you. Not like I've earned this. But God has given it to Paul. God has given it to church leaders. God has given it to all of us to take the gospel to the world. Well, Galatians 1.13 gives us a bit of of Paul's history. If you were with us in the Bible studies on Wednesday night and then Wednesday morning, we covered this passage. He said he used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and he tried to destroy it beyond measure no one else persecuted the church like paul did before he was saved and he didn't just want to hurt christians he wanted to completely destroy the church wipe it out he says i'm i'm the very least of anyone who would deserve salvation well if you go with me to first timothy 1 he gives a bit more detail there first timothy 1 13 he's just given thanks for christ uh, putting him in, into service and he says even though, 1 Timothy 1.13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, he, he spoke untruth about God. He blasphemed the name of God. How could he do that? He was, the, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was the Jew of the Jews. Yeah, but he spoke bad about Christ, the Son of God. He spoke against Christians, the body of Christ. And he says, and a persecutor, he chased them down, He wanted them to be punished. He wanted them to suffer. He watched while they were 
killed and stoned. And then he says, a violent aggressor. A violent aggressor. I hated them. And he enjoyed it. The Greek word under this violent aggressor means that he enjoyed it. That he enjoyed earning more righteousness in his own heart and eyes by persecuting Christians. He thought he was really doing something for the Lord. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul says, I'm the very least of all the saints. I'm the, I'm the foremost sinner. No one persecuted the church more than I did. And although we might not have persecuted the church as unbelievers, how much sin did we commit? Uh, how much time was spent devising ways to go against God, to sin against the Lord? Sins in the heart, sins in our actions, sins in our attitude. So we ought to have a similar attitude as Paul. Who are we to deserve God's grace? And he says, I'm the very least of all saints. But God has given me grace, not just in salvation, but also grace to go and preach this message I used to hate. He's appointed Paul a minister of the gospel. Now, what did Paul go do? What did God appoint him to do? Did God appoint him to go from town to town entertaining people? Did God appoint Paul to go from place to place putting on shows, pep talks, telling people how wealthy they might be someday? Did Paul make people feel good about themselves? You heard some of these songs we were singing today? Dirty and depraved. That's who we were. If we're in Christ now, that's who we once were. Well, that's what he had to tell them. He had to tell them they were sinners, but that there was a Savior. Continuing here in verse 8. He's been appointed, he's given grace by God to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what he's been told to do. Not all this other stuff. He is told to preach, to bring good news. That's what the word means here. It's actually not just preach, but it's preach the gospel. Euangelizo, proclamation of the gospel, to evangelize through preaching. And what did he preach? What's the content here? The unfathomable riches of Christ. Not that you're a good person. Not that if you just believe and have enough faith, everything will be great. The good news that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And the Savior has come. And you can be saved and brought together with the Jews who are saved into one body. The unfathomable riches of Christ. Unfathomable is how the NASB translate it. Yours might say untraceable, unsearchable, inscrutable, boundless. It's really hard to get one exact word to translate the Greek here, but it means it's impossible to understand fully. It's impossible to comprehend the riches in Christ. You can get a glimpse of it from Scripture. You can get a bit of it. You you can get enough of it, of course, to believe and be saved, but you're never going to reach the bottom of the riches of Christ. John MacArthur says it's all the truth about Christ and all that he means to us. You can't even get your mind around all of that. It would be one thing if you actually could get your mind around everything in Scripture and actually remember it and fully understand it and be able to explain it to others. But that's still 
not all the riches in Christ. There are many things that have not been told to us that are to come when we're with Christ. There are so many riches in Christ, Paul says. And he says, even if you carefully searched and thoroughly looked at it, you're never going to get to the bottom of the riches in Christ. It's impossible to fully comprehend it. He says something similar in Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. There's great depth. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Look at this message. Look at this content here. Paul says, I I can barely even scratch the surface, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to preach those riches. And and I'm going to say as much as I can about Christ. And it's so rich that even when you're saved and you spend your life studying the Bible, there's still more. And there's still more that we're going to experience in heaven. Many pastors today think that Christ is not enough. But it was for Paul. I mean, look at the privilege. He said, this is a great privilege to preach this message. Christ. Christ. What a privilege we have as preachers. What I have as a pastor to proclaim Christ every week. Just get up and proclaim Christ. That's why we started here at the church with the Gospel of Luke. We spent three and a half years just looking at the life of Christ, who he was, what he's done, what he taught. Still, we continue in Ephesians. What he's teaching through his apostle Paul. Too many pastors think Christ is not enough today. They seek to entertain. I mean, we're not perfect. We, we all are pulled, each, each of us as Christians, even myself, we're all pulled to want to be man-pleasers. We've got to look to Scripture here. Preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. It's beyond imaginable. That's enough right there if you stay on that subject your whole life. You don't need to bring in other things to replace Christ. We don't need anything else to replace the unfathomable riches of Christ. Pastor could spend his whole life preaching just this and never fully draw out the riches in Christ. John MacArthur's taught for over 40 years. He's covered every verse in the New Testament and just a few in the Old Testament. I'm not sure if there is anyone who's ever preached every single verse fully in the Bible. I'm not sure a person could live long enough to do that. But what kind of riches are there in Christ for us. Well, that's the content of what he preached. And he, not only was he sent to do that, though, but he's got something else, he says, and, verse 9, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Your translation might say enlighten. To bring to light, that's to enlighten the mind. It's to shine light in a dark place. Something that was not known before has now been revealed. It's now been enlightened. And he he wants to bring that message to people so that they will understand. He wants to teach the wonderful doctrine of God's plan in salvation. Go back to Ephesians 1.18. He's already prayed for them that they would be enlightened. Uh, Ephesians 1.18. He prayed. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened here he wants them to know and in chapter three as well how god has administrated how he's brought about this mystery to the world he wants them to understand so they can honor god and praise god god's plan for christ was to save gentiles to save jews and make them into one body the body of christ the church 
He wants them to understand that. That's doctrine that they need to know. Paul didn't show up one day and said, if you believe in Christ, you're saved, and then leave the next day and say, you're on your own. Figure it out. Now, in, in Ephesus, he stayed for three years. Three years, he taught them. Three years. He got to teach them day by day. They were spending time with him, learning the scriptures. And now he says, he writes back to them and says, I, I pray that you would even get more, he says in, in chapter 1, you would even get more of the understanding of God. Well, he was appointed to do that. He was appointed to proclaim the gospel and then with believers to teach them so that God would bring things to light in their hearts, in their minds. Bring new understanding of sanctification and how they had been justified, justification. He wants them to know. He wants them to understand things like election that he taught in chapter 1, predestination, redemption, sealing of the Holy Spirit, perseverance of the saints. He wants them to know these things. He wants them to understand that God, look at the the end of that verse, verse 9. This is the God who created all things. He created all things. He is the creator God. And he planned all these things before creation. God planned all of these things before creation. The administration, how this mystery would be revealed. It was once hidden in God for ages and ages, but now it's come to light. It's been revealed. It's no longer hidden. He had not forgotten the Gentiles. God created them. He knew who the Gentiles were. He promised through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your line. Now it's come about, Paul says. It's come about. The Gentiles are being saved. Well, that's what he wants them to learn. He wants them to see it, to be enlightened. You're you're not done learning about Christ the day you're saved. You're going to spend the rest of your life learning more about your Savior, living that out, and telling others. Otherwise, we just all go home to be with the Lord the day we're saved. Second, you're saved. You get translated into heaven. God doesn't want you on the earth anymore. No, no. Paul says his job is not just to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers, but to teach them, the believers, teach them so that they will be enlightened as to how God saved them and what it means for their life. As followers of Christ, we need to know more about God's plan. We need to know more about God's plan. We we need to know who God is, his attributes. I'm always trying to get books for our bookstore and recommend things and do systematic theology classes so we can learn more about God's attributes. We need to learn more about God's works. What's he done? What's he done in the Old Testament? What's he done in the New Testament? We need to know more about God's plan for Christ. Where is Christ in the Old Testament? Is he hidden behind certain words? Or is he plainly revealed in the Old Testament? We need to know more about his person, his deity. We need to know more about what Christ has done. We need to know more about the church. That's what he's teaching on right here. What is the church? He talks about proclamation of the gospel, but he's also going to teach us here in a second about the church. We need to know more about the church. Why is the church here? What's our purpose? What has God given us as a goal to accomplish for the church? Well, these are all part of the mystery that's been hidden for the ages. That's the content. He's coming. He's proclaiming that Christ came to save sinners and Now that you're saved, may God enlighten your mind into the scriptures so you can understand what has happened, what God has been doing from the beginning of time. Secondly, what's the purpose, though? 
That's what he says, the content. But what's the purpose? Preaching ought to have a purpose. When you, when you evangelize someone, you ought to have a purpose that that person be saved. Now, you can't do it. That's not up to you. That's up to God. He's the one who changes hearts. The Holy Spirit's the one who regenerates hearts. But you can faithfully proclaim the message. Your goal is to actually proclaim the truth and then leave it up to God and pray that they'll be saved. Pray that they'll be saved. Well, Paul has a purpose for doing these things too. He wants people to understand and even the angelic realm is going to be involved in this glorification of God. Look at verse 10. What's the purpose of him proclaiming to the Gentiles and teaching them? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. The manifold wisdom of God. So that is how it starts out though. So that. That's telling us that it is the purpose. The purpose of his mission. He has a purpose. The manifold wisdom of God needs to be proclaimed. What is that? What is this, Paul? We have to look up and study these words. It's not easy just to figure out if you read it really quick and don't slow down and study. Manifold wisdom. It's the true nature of God's plan to save Jew and Gentiles and unite them as one in the church. Now you might shrug your shoulders and say, so what? Church has been around a long time. What does it matter to me? Paul says it matters because if you were a Gentile, if you are still a Gentile, you ought to be thankful because God made no promises to your ancestors. No promises to your ancestors. And yet here you are in Christ. How'd that happen? Not because you deserved it. Go back to chapter 2. He's been through this here in chapter 2, 11 and following. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a bad place to be. That's a bad place to be. That's where our ancestors were. And that's actually where we were too before we were saved. We had no promises. We had no hope. The Old Testament, the covenants there were promised to ethnic Israel. And if you're not born a Jew, you don't even get to hear the scriptures before the Bible was published and the New Testament was spread around the world. As a Gentile, you might wander into Israel. You might hear about this God and eventually put your faith in him like Ruth did. But most Gentiles did not. And Paul says, now what has been hidden has now been revealed. This mystery has shown us the manifold wisdom of God. Something that was once hidden that has now been revealed. The Old Testament did predict that Gentiles would be blessed, but no one knew how that was going to happen. Not even the prophets of old knew that Jew and Gentile would be together in one body. They probably thought God will bless Israel and God will bless the Gentiles and they'll be separate. But Paul's saying, look, You're one body. You're one body. It's now been made known from God. Go back to 3.5. 3.5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but it's now been revealed. He says that the wisdom of God's been shown fully. Anyone can look at the scriptures and see it. Now God 
It's got to change their heart before they'll believe it. But it's fully revealed. It was hidden before. It was hidden. Even the prophets did not know. They, they were longing to look into the words that they were prophesying to see how they would turn out. This word manifold is a very interesting word. It's, it's rare in Greek. It, it means multifaceted, multicolored. It's a very exquisite pattern. It was used to describe uh, clothes that had a variety of colors or jewels that had many facets. I think one translation even says multifaceted here. God's wisdom is so great. It has all these different facets. And no matter how you turn the wisdom of God to look at it and examine it, it's beautiful. Like a diamond, like a jewel with many facets. That's God's wisdom. The wisdom that could accomplish this. Have you ever taken two people that are fighting and tried to reconcile them together? That's not easy to do. Have you ever taken two unbelievers that are fighting and trying to reconcile them together? That's even harder to do. Have you ever taken two nations that are fighting, tried to reconcile them together? And God has planned this all throughout history, that a whole group, the Israelites, would be reconciled with all the Gentiles, but only in the church, only in Christ. That's how beautiful God's wisdom is. The best thing I can think of is a rainbow, even a double rainbow that I once saw. We had, we had been in California in seminary for a few years, and it doesn't hardly rain out there. Southern California is a desert. If you get a rain, it's a little sprinkle. We never saw a rainbow there. We came back one summer, and we had kids that had been born out there that hadn't even seen a rainbow and much rain at all. And we were at our house out in comfort, and suddenly a double rainbow came out. And it just happened to be when I was looking at Ephesians and going through Ephesians 3, and I thought, that's a beautiful picture of God's creation, a rainbow, and many colors, many facets, such beauty. Well, imagine the wisdom of God. All that is in God's wisdom, it's that beautiful. He says, this manifold wisdom is is shown through the church. Through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These are not earthly rulers. In the heavenly places, these are angels. God purposed to show angels something, to teach them something through the church. The angels knew a lot. They, they were there and they got to see much of creation. Of course, they're created too, so they weren't there from the beginning, but they did get to see many things from the beginning. But God has not revealed all things to them. They're still learning. They, they knew that King David had been promised a, a ruler on his throne forever. They knew about the promise to Abraham. They knew that the Gentiles someday would be blessed in some way. But angels were wondering, how is God going to do this? Both good and bad angels. They're watching. They're waiting. They're wondering. They want to see. And here Paul tells us it's through the church that the angels are going to learn. They're angels right now learning from our worship service today. Learning not the word of God necessarily, but that God has brought us all together in one unified body. Each time someone gets saved, each time someone gets brought into the church, the angels are learning. All that has occurred in the church age since Christ, one commentator said, is like a graduate school for angels. They knew a lot, but they did not know this. Another commentator said, no person or supernatural power could have figured out how God would unfold his plan. But now that it's been revealed and set in motion, one can only stand back and marvel at God's design. Let's not take it for granted. Oh yeah, it's the church. Just got to find a church, go to church. No big deal. Paul says, that's a mystery. 
that wasn't even revealed until Christ came. And you ought to look at it and be thankful and honor and praise God that you're a part of it. Because angels are even watching and learning. Well, this is what Peter meant in 1 Peter 1.12. Talking about the prophets, it said that it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. New Testament believers. The Old Testament prophets were serving you by writing these things down in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels are sitting there waiting to see what will happen. But what do they learn? What do angels learn through looking at the church? Let's try to be more specific. What do they learn? The Bible teaches us they learn that the gospel would be preached and that sinners would be saved. And they're going to rejoice. Jesus says in Luke 15.10, the angels rejoice. He says, in the same way I tell you, there's joy in the presence of angels, the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. When you were saved, when you repented, when you trusted in Christ, there were angels celebrating in heaven. He's not talking about guardian angels and a lot of what's taught out there on angels. He's saying real angels of God are in heaven and they worshiped God and they rejoiced when you repented. Every single time somebody got saved. They also watched the activities of the church. Twice in Paul's other letters, he mentions that angels are watching and that ought to give some seriousness Paul says, to what I'm saying, what he's teaching. You ought to obey God because it's not just God watching, but all the angels are observing as well. 1 Corinthians 11.10 Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. In other words, the woman ought to, to be submissive, uh, a woman to her husband, and, and then women are not to be preachers in the church, he says, not pastors. He says they ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The angels are watching, Paul says. And so you ought to dress in such a way that shows you're a woman. And in that culture, it was to wear a covering on your head in church. In 1 Timothy 5, he's talking about disciplining elders. And he writes to Timothy and he says, when you discipline an elder, bring them up in front of everybody, rebuke them so people will be fearful. And he goes on to say in 521, 1 Timothy 521, Paul here it says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in the spirit of partiality. So God's holy angels are watching and they're going to watch to see if you actually follow through, Timothy, with what I'm writing to you. They are observing the church. They are learning how this is all working out. What about fallen angels? What do they learn? They learn two things, really. They, they learn that they can't hinder the progress of the gospel. It's Satan's hope that there'll continue to be this animosity. Satan loves it when churches divide. Satan loves it when churches split. He loves it when churches go liberal. Satan loves it when false doctrine is taught. He loves it. But the true church, Paul says, the true church is going to proclaim the gospel. They're going to show these angels so many wondrous things like Jew and Gentile being brought together in one body. People who hated each other being saved and now they're friends. Now they're worshiping the same God. You know, in these communist countries, communist government workers used to, and they still do in communist countries today, persecute Christians. And then one would get saved and he finds himself right next to the guy he used to persecute worshiping 
the same Lord. There are many stories of that that have happened throughout history and still today. Satan can't hinder the church. This hostility that he loved to see between the Jews and Gentiles is gone. And so the fallen angels are learning that every time a sinner repents and joins the church. Secondly, though, fallen angels also realize that they are going to be subject to Christ. They're just reminded as they watch the church, they are reminded. You remember when Jesus showed up and cast out a demon? They were fearful what? He was going to cast them into the abyss. It's not our time yet. It's not our time yet. But they're being reminded as they watch the church. Christ is coming back. They won't be serving him, but they'll be punished by him. They'll submit in that way. They'll be punished for eternity, the lake of fire. All fallen angels. Ephesians 1.10. He says, With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens, Paul says, that's the angels, and things on earth. Every rogue king will submit to Christ and be punished for their sin. Every fallen angel will submit to Christ and be punished for their sin. So the angels are watching. The angels are learning. Well, this is God's plan. What was the purpose here? To make known God's wisdom through the church to angels a secondary plan? Is that something that just came up later? No, it's always been there in the mind of God. It's his wisdom. It's always been there. It's not plan B. God didn't say, you know, the Jews rejected me. Now I'm going to go save the Gentiles. I got a second plan. I got a plan B. From creation, from eternity past. It is the eternal purpose of God. This teaches us that the church ought to be unified. There shouldn't be division. Satan loves it when there's division, as I said. There ought not to be racism. There ought not to be gossip. There ought not to be factions. There ought not to be mumbling against each other, against leaders. The angels are watching. The angels are learning. God is watching. Christ is watching. We ought to show ourselves as a unified body. That's what he's going to go into in chapter 4 of Ephesians. He's going to talk about unity because that's a big issue. That's an application that we can make from verse 10. And he goes on to say all of these things are in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's eternal. It's always been in the mind of God. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't God's plan after he created. He always planned all of this everything it did not come about all of it wasn't revealed until christ came it's always been in the mind of god before even the first molecule was created he knew god knew that his son was coming into the world to be crucified on a roman cross and that if we trust in him the resurrected christ if we trust in him that we can be saved that was always in the mind of god it's eternal eternal you know what eternity means There was never a time when it didn't exist. God is eternal. There was never a time God didn't exist. This purpose is an eternal purpose. All of these things he's been talking about, they're eternal purposes of God. But it's only because the church alone is Christ's body. You see, he says, in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means, unbelievers, this doesn't apply. This doesn't apply. Sometimes people look at this verse and this passage and this chapter, and they think, well, this means that everyone in the world is going to love Israel, that God brings them together. Well, we know that's not even true today. Others say, well, you know what? This means that anywhere you look around the world, Jews and Gentiles ought to get along well. 
No, it's only carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's only in Christ Jesus. He's the one. He's the one that we have all riches in. He's the one we praise and glorify and thank for everything. Thirdly, let's look at the result. Last two verses here, the result. So we know the content of what he went and preached and taught. We know the purpose. One of the major purposes was that the angels could learn. I like passages like this because people say, where am I in the Bible? Well, you're there, but you're in the background right now. In this chapter, you're in the background. You're part of the church. But not every passage is just about you, is it? What's the Bible about? It's about God. The Bible is a book about God. And we worship God. And we are saved by God. But the Bible is a book about God. And then he's revealing to us how to be saved and how to be sanctified. So he's saying that the angels are being taught something. But that will result in something good for us. It's not as if God doesn't care about his elect, those whom he saves. Verse 12, in whom, in Christ, in whom, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. We can come to God in boldness. If you're saved in Christ, if you have Christ as your Savior, you have boldness to come before God. Not pridefulness, not demanding God to do whatever you want, but you don't have to have fear. The word here means the ability to come before God and be heard without fear of judgment, without fear of destruction. Today we think we can come before God and anybody can come before God. It doesn't matter. People don't have a fear of God, but yet in ancient times they feared the gods and they knew if you displeased your God, you would be destroyed. We've been going through the book of Daniel at home with um, the kids and family worship. And Daniel just keeps falling down. One time he passes out because he sees an angel. Descriptions of people when they see angels and when they see the pre-incarnate Christ is awesome. They don't just say, hey, buddy, hey, old pal, let me put my arm around you. They fall down as if dead because they've seen an angel. And Paul says, look, if you're in Christ, you have boldness. You can go to God without fear and you have confident access. The way is not blocked. The way is open now. Unbelievers, they have a blocked path they can't get to God but now it's open and you can come confidently and you have access to God you can come and pray to God and approach him without fear that's wonderful you mean Paul that you proclaim this gospel and people got saved and the angels were the purpose the angels were learning and as a result we get to have access to God in Christ that's amazing we ought not to think that we can do all things We can come to God and ask him for help. We can pray. We can worship God. We have access. Well, finally, he says, the whole point of this, everything he said since verse 1 of chapter 3, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf. He's been scared that because he's in prison, remember he's in Rome, he's been there for some time, that they're going to lose hope, that they're going to give up, that they're going to quit living a godly life and maybe even... Try to turn away from Christ. And he says, don't give up. Look at what's happened. I came and I preached and you got saved and the church started and Jew and Gentile are together and angels are learning and you have access to God through Christ. Don't give up just because I'm in prison. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm here because Christ wants me to be here. They're on your behalf anyway. All of these sufferings are on your behalf. The whole reason he's in prison is because he preached to the Gentiles. 
He preached to the Gentiles. He preached that Gentiles did not have to submit to the Mosaic law. They got angry with him in Jerusalem. They started a riot. The Romans came in. They took Paul away. Eventually, he ends up in Rome. He's in prison. And he says, it's for your sake that all this happened. That's good. And he, and he ends by saying, for they, the sufferings, are for your glory. They're your glory. Now, glory is usually mentioned in connection with God, but just think of it as honor, reputation. It's good for you that I'm in prison, Paul says. If I hadn't preached the gospel and ended up in prison, you would have never heard the gospel. You would have never been saved. This is for a good thing. You ought to be honored that I am here. It's for your good. It's for your sake. They ought to be honored because he's suffering. Not that we should find joy in Paul's suffering. When Christians in China suffer, we shouldn't find joy in the fact that they're being harmed. But we know ultimately it's for Christ's sake. Ultimately, it's for the sake of the people that they're proclaiming the gospel to in China. That's what Paul says here. He also says in 2 Timothy 2.10, For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may also obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. Would we suffer? Would we suffer like that? For other people's honor? For other people's glory? Paul did. He said, I'm here for you. You should be happy. You should be happy that I preach the mystery of Christ to you. So as you go home and remember this passage, remember I said chapter 3 is some heavy doctrine about the church, but it's there for us to honor God. It's there for us to praise Christ. It's not a chapter you should just skip over. You know, let me read about election. I want to read about total depravity. Now I'm skipping to chapter 4. No, 3 is there for a reason. It's teaching us about this mystery. And this passage is showing us the content. What did he preach? The purpose to which he preached it for and the result that we get to benefit from. Let's praise God. Let's honor him. Let's give thanks to him. If you're in Christ, you should give thanks. And I'll just conclude with one last thought. I uh, picked up a guy who just got out of prison. He just got off the bus. He got out of prison that very day. And I had to give him a ride somewhere for about an hour. So what better thing to do than talk about the gospel? He had heard the gospel growing up, but it had been a legalistic gospel. And I said, what did prison teach you? And he said, well, I, I found a new way to God. And he told me what that was, and it wasn't, it wasn't the gospel. And I said, well, let me tell you what the Bible says. And he said, well, I've already heard that. And I said, no, let me tell you what the Bible says. So I told him, and he says, you don't understand what I've done. There's no way God could save me. I'm past forgiveness. And I said, that's not true. Have you ever heard of the Apostle Paul? He was a violent aggressor. He was a persecutor. He tried to destroy the church. And yet God gave him grace. Made him an apostle. If, if God can save a man like that, there's no sins that we can commit in this life that God can't forgive us of if we turn to Christ. If we turn to Christ. So for an hour, I just kept on going back to the gospel. I pray that the young man commits his life to Christ. He didn't on that trip. But I want you to know today, if you're not putting your trust in Christ, this message that Paul proclaimed is still today good news. God can save us. No matter what sin we commit, Paul was a very evil man before he was saved. And yet God completely turned his life around. So I pray that if you're hearing this message today, that you would realize the true gospel of Christ is that sinners can be saved. 
Lord, we do thank you for the gospel message, the mystery which was revealed, the mystery that Christ came into the world to save Jew and Gentile alike, to bring us together into one body. We pray, Lord, that we would honor you and praise you for this. In Christ's name, amen.